All right. How many of you use Airbnb? Nice. Sweet. It's, it's, it's a good thing you guys are here then, right? Okay. Just uh, to start off, in 2007, Joe left his job at a San Francisco publisher to start a business with his former classmate and friend, Brian Chesky. Soon they found themselves unable to pay rent on their apartment, but opportunity came in the form of a design conference, and they hit upon the idea that they could rent airbeds, prepare a home-cooked breakfast, and still make rent. In that moment, Airbnb, or Airbed and Breakfast, was born. Within a few short years, Airbnb raised $120 million and is valued at more than $1 billion. Want to get into all that, but please give a warm welcome to Joe Jevia, co-founder, chief product officer of Airbnb. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, you make it sound so easy when you give the intro. Yeah, in a couple of years, they raised a lot of money. No big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No big deal. No big deal. No big deal. But I'm um, glad to have you here. Um, one it's of good the, to be here. Thank you. One of the things I, I want to get into, because I'm very much into people's uh, secret origins, and you kind of have a varied background in product, you industrial design, print, web, and I kind of wanted to get into just how does that varied background kind of influence how you approach uh, designs and problems, and how does it influence your work? So my background, I, I did a double degree in industrial design and graphic design. And people often ask, well, my god, you're doing an internet startup. How on earth does an industrial design education apply to the internet? This physical world, and then there's this virtual world. And surprisingly enough, the principles are pretty much the same. You have, you design a consumer product. Um, you know, the, the way that we were taught and trained to think about how to design a consumer product is to um, think about every moment of the user experience, from the, the packaging to the unboxing to the first time you turn whatever it is on to the whole kind of user experience from beginning to end. And it's, it's actually um, it's very similar to how we think about you know, Airbnb and our user experience online. Um, and there's an, actually another really cool thing that, that applies, I think, to the internet. When we were studying industrial design, the way that we started was to go out into the world and to go understand how people were using the existing product today. And a um, great example is if you're designing medical equipment. Um, we would go to the hospital. So we'd leave the studio, we'd go out into the world, we'd go into the hospital, and we'd observe. We'd go look at how patients and nurses and doctors were dealing with whatever it was we were trying to, to solve. And not only that, but then, then we became the patient. And we would actually lay down in the, in the bed and get the device applied to us. And we would put ourselves in the shoes of the person we were designing for. And I think that that is a, a universal principle, whether it's in the physical world or whether it's online. Awesome. And, and, and that product design uh, experience, obviously, has come in to some play and some use. And I, I kind of want to get into kind of the origins, if you will, of Air Bed and Breakfast. You left your job at uh, Chronicle Books, one of my favorite publishers, I've got to say. So I'm like super stoked to meet you just for that. Um, Airbnb, what's that? No. Um, but it kind of just started. You guys kind of plunged in. And kind of how did that idea initially form? And, and how did you guys kind of really start that up from your living room? Sure. So I, I need to give some background first before we get into like the, the aha moment of how this all kind of came together. Um, 
About 12 years ago, I met a guy named Brian Chesky. We were industrial design students together at the Rhode Island School of Design. And it was while we were on campus that we started to realize that if you put us in the same room together at the same time, we could solve really tough problems together in a really creative way. And the feeling was so strong that before we graduated, I actually invited him to get a slice of pizza. And I said, Brian, I think one day you and I are going to start a company. And he kind of looked at me with this funny face. He goes, ah, that sounds weird. I go, no, I think one day we're going to start a company. They're going to write a book about it. I have no idea what it's going to be, but it's just this, this premonition that I have. And so he graduates, goes off to Los Angeles. I move to San Francisco. And it was pretty, you know, being in San Francisco is pretty quick to identify that you know, it was the hotbed for entrepreneurship that I always imagined it would be. And I immediately pick up the phone and call Brian. Brian, what are you doing in LA? You gotta come up to San Francisco. This is where all the action is. And he's like, no, 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 I like my lifestyle down here. So two years of recruiting, finally get Brian to move up to San Francisco. And it was at this moment in our lives, we realized that um, if we were going to fulfill our dreams of becoming entrepreneurs, we would need to create the space to do that. And at the time, I was working at a publisher in San Francisco, and Brian was doing design in LA. And we simultaneously quit our jobs. We didn't know what was going to happen. But we realized that if we could create the space, put us in the same room, we'll figure something out together. So it's completely ironic that the same weekend he moves up, is the same weekend we quit our jobs, unbeknownst to us, our landlord was preparing a letter. And we got the letter a few days later. And when I opened it up, it said, Dear Joe, your rent is now 25% higher. So suddenly the rent is going like this, and our bank accounts are going like this, and Brian and I look at each other and we go, uh-oh, we have a problem on our hands. And we literally have days to figure out how to solve this problem. So we pull out our sketchbooks, and we're in our living room, and we're coming up with all of these crazy random ideas of how to make some extra cash. And we have our laptop open, and we notice that there's an industrial design conference coming to San Francisco. It's the IDSA. In 2007, they had their international conference in San Francisco, and it was so big, the hotels had completely sold out. And so we're thinking, huh, that's, that's, that's terrible. The designers are going to have to stay by the airport if they want to come to the conference. And it's kind of at this moment, we're looking around the apartment, and we're like, wait a second. What about all this extra space? What if we were to blow up an airbed on the floor and rent it out to a designer? And we realized, we're like, well, that, yeah, we could do that. That'd be cool. But what if we made it more of an experience? What if, we, what if we provided a BART pass? What if we provided a map to the city? What if we cooked breakfast in the morning? And we live in south of Market, so what if we gave them some, some change to give the bums outside our apartment? So it was kind of like <laughs> the full experience of San Francisco. Uh, we actually did do that, and it was kind of an experience. But um, <laughs> So this, this kind of like concept that we had on the first day was something like this wasn't a bed and breakfast. This was an air bed and breakfast. And we realized pretty quickly after we inflated the first air bed that we had room for two more. <laughs> so we went to the store and we had three air beds. And by the end of the night, we had this idea called air bed and breakfast. That was day one. Day two, we get the domain and we make the website airbedandbreakfast.com, which is probably the longest URL you've ever heard of. It's 18 characters. And we make this website in literally a day. It's four pages, super simple, pictures of us, pictures of the apartment, did a neighborhood guide. And we realized at the end of day two that, cool, we have a website, but nobody knows about it. What are we going to do? We had never gotten any press in our lives. We didn't even know how you get press. 
how do you get on a blog that was like so foreign to us. Um, that night, we kind of threw a Hail Mary. We emailed all the top design blogs that we read every day, Course 77, Swiss Miss, Design Observer, and so on. And it was kind of like, we're just going to tell them what we're doing, and maybe they'll like it, maybe they won't. But the next morning, we woke up, and it was like Christmas morning. We opened up our laptops, and there at the top of these design blogs that we admired so much were headlines like, need a place to stay? Crash with Joe and Brian in their summer loft. <laughs> these like, kind of crazy headlines. Like, uh, one was like, want to network in your jam jams? <laughs> stay with Joe and Brian. So it was like, it was kind of crazy, this idea that we had 72 hours earlier was now broadcast to the world. And by day four, the world was emailing us. We had designers from England, designers from Brazil, designers from Japan, designers from India that needed a place to stay for the conference. So suddenly we were inundated with more applicants than we had airbeds for. And by day six, there were three people sleeping in our living room. That's how fast all of this happened at the beginning. And <clears throat> a couple, couple things happened. So first, let me ask you, think for a minute. What type of person do you imagine is the demographic that would sleep on an airbed in somebody's living room? Who comes, what comes to mind? College. College, yes. Young folks, yes. What else? OK. <laughs> Frequent travels like couchsurfing, right? Uh, probably male, probably some, some young college guys. This is the image that we had in our mind of the kind of people we'd be hearing from. It turns out that all three of our guests were over the age of 30. One was a guy from India, 32-year-old grad student studying industrial design. One was a 38-year-old woman from Boston. And our third guest was a 45-year-old husband and family man who slept on an airbed on a kitchen floor. And so suddenly, when our guests arrived, we realized it was like this kind of like, whoa, wait a second. This assumptions that we had made were totally inaccurate. And we're like, wow, maybe there's a wider audience out there that's international, that's men and women, and that's like an older de demographic than we originally thought. So it started to plant a seed. And uh, the four or five days that they stayed with us for the conference, I have to tell you, we, we proceeded to have the time of our lives. You know, we did this for financial reasons because we had to pay a rent check to, to get out. Um, but what, what we quickly discovered is that the social experience of sharing San Francisco in our apartment with our guests was so much more enriching than the, the $1,000 that we made. Of course, it was nice to save the apartment. Um, but this kind of social experience was completely unexpected. And it was somewhat magical that we could take three people into our home who we'd never met before, and they left as friends. And in fact, the, the um, guest from India, his name is Amol, he, uh, two years later, invited us to his wedding. Just to give you a sense of how profound that, that interaction experience was. Because we took him to you know, the ferry building for the farmer's market, to the Golden Gate Bridge, to burritos in the mission, to parties that our friends were throwing that they otherwise never would have access to. And think about the experience that they had. At the, the end of the conference, every night, you know, majority of people went to you know, a hotel in Union Square, kind of a, you know, box of a room that's kind of probably maybe by themselves, or kind of, you know, disconnected from, like, the, the, the city, to, from the, the, the culture of San Francisco. Contrast that with our three guests came back to our apartment. We cooked dinner together. We had music playing. There was conversations. We were sharing ideas. 
the, uh, the web designer, uh, she worked at Razorfish at the time, she was giving us tips on how to make the website better. Um, the, Amol from India was sharing his thesis project about artificial intelligence. And it was just these fascinating conversations. And it was so social and lively that it was like the complete antithesis of like traditional accommodations. And so it was both this combination of the financial aspect and this amazing social experience we had that you could see the light bulb start to, start to glow. It's like, wait a second. We're just two ordinary guys. And we're having this amazing time. We're willing to bet there's tens of thousands, hundreds, millions of other people around the world who would also want to participate in something like this. So that, that's, that was a spark. That's what got the ball rolling. But it certainly didn't provide all the answers. Um, it was a very long road ahead of us. And where we started and where we are today are two very different places. And speaking of that, of that uh, long road, like how do you start to scale from like a living room to, to now? I mean, I know that's, that's a few years, but you know, where, do you, where do you first decide, hey, we have to scale? And I know, uh, you know you guys kind of did some things with a cereal box to, to raise money, and then you got the attention of Y Combinator. Tell us a little bit about sure. that and, and kind of take us to some of the issues you uh, encountered while scaling. So you know what's kind of cool is this week, five years ago, was the conference. It was October of 2007. And so this experience happened pretty much five years ago to this week. And so afterwards, Brian and I kind of look at each other and we're like, what do we do with this? We're just designers. We made a really simple HTML website. But if we want to build a really robust service, we're going to need some true programming expertise. So Brian asked me, who's the best programmer you know? And I say, well, actually, the guy that used to live in your bedroom before he moved up, former roommate, Nate. He's a Harvard computer science graduate. And Nate had this amazing work ethic, because we'd always be up late working in the living room on our side projects. So we go and we, we meet up with Nate. We're like, Nate, here's what happened. We tell him the experience. And he, he had just left the startup that he was working at, looking for the next thing to work on. And uh, he loved the idea of how we were starting to bridge online and offline. Even back in 2007, he could see this, this future where uh, the internet and the offline world would start to converge. And so he got really excited. He joined us. And we made the next version of the site just in time for South by Southwest in 2008. We figure, here's another event. There's 100,000 people going to Austin. Hotels are going to sell out. Let's go help solve that problem. So we, we in February, pull a bunch of all-nighters. We're up late, getting the site done. And we relaunch for South by Southwest. We figure this is, you know, this is where Foursquare is, where Twitter launched. Like, this is going to be a big splash. And we had all of about 15 people list and exactly two bookings <laughs> for South by Southwest. One of those bookings was us. <laughs> <laughs> So we're, we go to Austin, and um, this is, by the way, linking it back to industrial design and um, you know, going out into the world and studying how people use a product and then becoming the patient. This was us becoming the patient. We were guests using our own service. And so we stayed with, uh, with a guy out in Austin. He was a graduate student out there. And um, when we went in, there was a, he had the airbed set up with the towels. He had a mint on the pillow. He's cooking dinner for us. He was taking it more seriously than we were. And the whole experience was great, up until the point where he says, by the way, where is my money? Because at the time, it was just you pay when you're on arrival. There's no payment system. It wasn't very fancy. And suddenly, we're like, oh, right, the money. And then we pulled our wallets. We actually didn't have enough cash on us. We'd go to ATM. We'd come back with a bunch of 20s. We didn't have exact change. Did we tip him? The whole thing was like super awkward. 
And we got back from South by Southwest in 2008, and we debriefed, the three of us in our apartment. We said, well, here's what worked with this experience, and here's what didn't. And the number one thing was the whole money issue. It was like, God, well, there's, there's got to be a better way. What if people could pay online with their credit card prior to taking the trip? Huh, that'd be interesting. Payments would be a lot easier. You could just remove this whole awkward cash in person thing. Um, it'd be much cleaner kind of in-person interaction. So we started to rebuild the site with a payment system. The other thing is that we, we, the original opportunity that we thought was housing for conferences. We thought that across the United States, people would blow up airbeds in their living room when conferences came to town because hotels sell out. Well, it turns out that people wanted to use the service to go anywhere at any time, regardless of events. So in the summer of 2008, we completely rebuilt from the ground up with a payment system and a global platform where you could travel anywhere at any time. And while we're building in 2008, and this is around June, we start to see some headlines about a gentleman named Barack Obama. Barack Obama was the king of the headlines in that summer. And the headlines were reading uh, about the, the amazing crowds that he was drawing to his, to his talks. In Portland, Oregon, he had 75,000 people attend his speech. Never before had a presidential candidate drawn that many people in Portland. And so we started to look into it a little bit deeper, and we realized that he was going to be speaking a couple months out in Denver at the Democratic National Convention. And they, in fact, they moved him from the 20,000-seat Pepsi Arena to the 100,000-seat Invesco Stadium Field. And that meant that they had a lot more seats to fill in Denver. The problem is there's only about 25,000 or so hotel rooms in Denver. Most of them were booked by the delegates already. So we, in advance, we said, we need to relaunch just in time for the DNC. Maybe we can ride the coattails of this major housing problem. In fact, the, the mayor of Denver was like, he was prepared to open up the city parks so that people could camp. That's, that's, how, like, that's how urgent this problem was for housing during the DNC. So we launched just in time. We get 800 listings in Denver, Obama supporters opening up their homes to other Obama supporters. And we, sure enough, the story of what we were doing went local to regional to national to international in a matter of about four weeks. And that was actually a really good learning for us because when we launched, relaunched the site in, in August 2008, we pick up the phone, we call the top tier press, and we want to tell them about our shiny new website, and they didn't really care. <laughs> to be honest, they, they didn't care. They didn't return emails, they didn't return phone calls. And so we said, okay, well, that approach isn't working. Let's change tact here. So we said, well, what's, who will return our phone calls? And so we started to find local bloggers in Denver. And we contacted them, and they loved the story. So they started to write about it. It turns out that the Denver Post looks to local bloggers for story ideas. And so here we were at the bottom of this, this pyramid of press, the lowest level of the local bloggers. We got the story seated there, and then we get a call from the Denver, Denver Post. They, we heard about your story. We want to do a follow-up, interview one of the hosts. So we said, sure, great. So we do a story in the Denver Post. Then it turns out that the local news looks to the Denver Post for ideas. So we get a call from CBS, and they say, we want to do a local news piece on you guys and interview one of your hosts. We're like, great. Turns out that if CBS does a story, ABC and NBC also want to do a story, too. So we get calls from them. And then when it becomes a local broadcast story, then we got a call from the Boulder press. Said, hey, we heard what's going down there, what's going on in Denver. We want to do a story here in Boulder. So then it started to become a regional story. And then we get a call from CNN. <laughs> so we move up the, the pyramid here, because CNN looks to regional stories to make them national stories. And it became a national story. We did a five-minute live interview with CNN from our living room. And we, it's funny, because during the summer, we were three guys with no money and no users and no product, to suddenly we were 
three guys with no money and a product, and suddenly we were on national television, like in our living room. But we still had like nothing. Like it was really funny. Um, so we're doing this interview, and then we get a call from the Guardian in England. It's like the whole story matriculated its way up, but we couldn't have started at the top. We had to start at the bottom with the people who return our phone calls. And the power of the story of what we were doing was strong enough to work its way all the way up. So that was a big learning for us because we did this without any money. Like this was just us digging into Google News, finding reporters' names, and contacting them. We had no resources except our time and our ambition. Um, so the story became national. We uh, actually used it to go back to Denver. I had a great experience. And um, <laughs> as fast as the graph went like this, it went right back down like that. And we, we witnessed what we, what's called in the startup world the, the tech crunch of initiation, where you launch and you get all this publicity and you, you, you know, th people think, oh, you get on TechCrunch, you're all set. Because it goes like this, through traffic. And it's like, yes. But it turns off that there's this other phase called the wearing off of novelty, where you go right back down like that. And when it comes back down, you enter this period in a startup's life called the trough of sorrow. <laughs> How many people have heard of the trough of sorrow? How many are currently there? Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of respect for you. The trough of sorrow is where I feel like your passion for your idea is truly tested. The trough of sorrow is where you will truly be pushed up against the wall to say, like, you really want to do this? Because that, that time in a startup, it could be weeks, the trough, it could be months, it could be years. For us, it was a very, very long time. And it, people would say, like, why are you still doing this, <laughs> basically? Because at this time, we're basically we're running out of money, like our savings are dwindling. Um, we get introduced to 20 investors, 10 return our emails, three meet us for coffee, zero invest. This is now, uh, this is like August 2008. Uh, this is before the economy tanked. So here we are, we have this product and this concept, no traffic, no funding, what are we gonna do? Well, we like to joke that we raised a round, that we call, we call it the Visa round, and we funded the company on our credit cards for the first couple of years. Uh, and it was around this time in the Trough of Sorrow, I think the only way out of the Trough of Sorrow is creativity, to be honest with you, like, that's, that's all you have. And we had this product, but there was, what happens in the Trough of Sorrow is you have a product in the market, but they don't fit yet. You don't have product market fit, which is why the traffic is basically flat. So uh, I remember late one night, Brian and I were trying to keep our spirits up, trying to keep our, our humor alive. And um, this is around probably October of uh, maybe end of September 2008. We're in the kitchen. It's 2 in the morning. And things aren't looking very good for the company. Um, and we kind of start joking. Wouldn't it be funny to send our hosts breakfast cereal? riff on the, the breakfast side of Airbed and breakfast, and they could give that to their guests. And we start to joke, wouldn't it be funny if that was Obama-themed? And we go, well, what would that be called? Hmm, let's call that Obama-O's, the breakfast of change. And so we had a good laugh, we kept our spirits up, and we realized, well, if, we're gonna make a, if you had Obama cereal, you have to make a McCain cereal. What would you call that? We turn, turns out we were on Wikipedia looking at his bio, and he was an officer in the Navy. So clearly, Captain McCain. Captain McCain's. <laughs> a maverick in every bite. So this is where things get kind of took a turn down a weird street. We, 
we end up making this breakfast cereal. Maybe, how many people have seen Obama O's? Awesome. Awesome. How many people have tasted Obama O's? Okay, cool. Um, we end up making breakfast cereal. And the thing is, this is the, the crazy, one of the craziest moments, I think, in our history, because here we are in debt. We have tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt at this point. Um, nobody's investing. We have this internet service, but we wanted to spend money to make breakfast cereal. It totally didn't align at all. So, but we, we really wanted to make the cereal, because we could picture the boxes with like Obama, with like this funny caricature of him with a spoon, and, like some, and Captain McCain, like McCain with this big grin, and like the, the whole like suit of the uniform and the hat. And we ended up finding a caricature artist. We ended up finding a printer who would print for us on spec. So he didn't charge us anything up front, but he said, as you guys sell these, you can pay me back. It turns out he's like, I'm not going to make thousands of boxes for you, but I'll print 500 of each. And suddenly it's like, wait a second, 500 of each? That's a collector's item. <laughs> We're going to number them on the top, one out of 500, two out of 500. It turns out you can sell collector political breakfast cereal for $40 a box, which we did. <laughs> and we, <laughs> we sent the boxes to CNN, to Wall Street Journal, to, all the, to Jay Leno, to Good Morning America. And it, imagine you're a reporter, and every day you get hundreds of press releases over email. And then one day, you get a box on your desk that's like this big. And you open it up, and there are these two hilarious caricatures of Obama and McCain staring back at you in the face. You're going to follow up with whoever made this box of cereal. <laughs> and they did. The cereal was all over the news. And we ended up, after it was on CNN, we ended up selling out of Obama O's. 500 boxes, $40 a box. It was over $20,000 to help fund the business. So Airbnb was funded for breakfast cereal. <laughs> and how much does a box of that go nowadays? It is on eBay. If you still want one, I think the going rate is upwards of $400. It's a little expensive for breakfast cereal. It's probably stale by now, too. It probably is. <laughs> but, but that kind of got you guys some notice. And uh, you were able to actually get into an incubator. And, and from that incubator, when was kind of like the moment when you guys decided, we need, to, we need to scale, we need to expand, we need to make this bigger and better. Right. So this is now, we're getting towards the end of 2008. The, the economy has now tanked. Lehman's has gone under. Um, the investment community calls it a nuclear winner. There's going to be no investments, certainly not for a crazy company like ours. And we have one, there's one last hope for us. Because we're having conversations about whether this should continue or not. Like, because if you made decisions based on numbers, you would not continue Airbnb at this point. Thank goodness we had the experience of the guests in our apartment to return to. And we always said, like, no, no, no. Like, we know what it feels like for this to work. We have to keep going. It was, it was our three guests that kept the passion going for us in these, the Trophosara. So um, we ended up getting into Y Combinator. And is um, anybody, everybody knows Y Combinator? Yeah, cool. It's a great C program. And in 2009, it was kind of just starting to emerge as like this uh, really interesting program. And we get in, we were, there was only 16 companies at the time. And we, on the first day, we have our meeting with Paul Graham, who's the guy that runs the program. And we present these 12 different strategies of how we want to spend the next three months. And Paul looks at them all, and he's a very discerning face. And uh, I'll try to do my best Paul Graham impersonation. Uh, he goes, these aren't going to work. And he kind of like throws them off the table. And Brian and Nate and I are looking at each other like, well, what are, what are we going to do? And he asked us a really simple question. 
the question was, where's your market? And we look at each other and we're like, well, you know, the site's not really working anywhere, but New York has promise. And so Paul goes, his uh, thing with his hands, so he goes, uh, so let me understand this. Your, your users are in New York City, and, and you're here in Mountain View. And we're like, yeah, we're here for Y Combinator. And he goes, your users are in New York City, and you're here in Mountain View. <laughs> There's this long pause, and he goes, what are you still doing here? <laughs> Go to New York City. <laughs> he, he points at you like this. He goes, Go to New York City. So we're like, okay, that doesn't scale. Because you know what? This whole time, up until this moment in our young internet entrepreneur lives, we had this mentality that you had to do things in a scalable way. We thought that because it's the internet, we had to solve problems from behind our computer screen. The idea of leaving our apartment and going out to the world, traveling across the country was just totally ridiculous because that doesn't scale. You can't do that forever. And so it wasn't up until this moment that Paul Graham essentially gave us permission to do things that don't scale. It was that singular moment that everything changed. And he taught us the beauty of doing things that don't scale. So how did this play out? Well, we're looking through search results in New York City. We had a total of 50 hosts at the time, 50 people renting out their space, anything from a private room to the entire apartment. And as we're going through it, we, we have an observation. We realize that the, the photos that hosts had of their apartment were not very good. They were taken at night. They were blurry. They were just not great images. So Brian and I look at each other and we realize, we know how to take good photos. Let's just fly to New York and solve this problem ourselves. We're going to rent a really nice camera, wide-angle lens. It was like a Nikon, Nikon D5000 or something. It was like the best of the best. And like, so th that weekend, we get on a plane. We fly to New York. We go door to door throughout Manhattan and Brooklyn taking photos of host apartments. And I'll never forget the first apartment I shot. I'd taken the pictures, and I showed the host. I'm like, hey, what do you think? And they're like, oh my god, like, the apartment looks so good. I didn't know my apartment looked that great. And, 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 and she's like, do you want to stay for coffee and tea? And I'm like, sure. So we sit down on the couch. I pull out the laptop. And suddenly, all of the training of design research kicked in. And suddenly, I realize I'm sitting here with one of our customers. And we're about to walk through the product. So I pull out my sketchbook. And I go right into design research mode. I start asking questions. Show me how you check your messages on the site. Um, how do you update your calendar? Um, if this product could have anything for you, what would it be? Like, if, if you could name the top three pain points, three features that you want. And so the cool thing is that these early hosts were the early adopters. They were doing this on other websites before us, Craigslist and Subwest.com and HomeAway and others. And so by the time we arrived, some of them actually had lists of features that they wanted in a product that they had been saving for the day that a co-founder would come to the living room. <laughs> Which happens all the time, I hear. It was like, it was like gold. Like, they would just rattle off all these things that we never knew they were problems or issues because we were stuck behind our computer screens in San Francisco. And it wasn't until this moment where we got out into the real world, sitting face to face with our customers in their apartments, talking about the product, that we started to see where our product market fit was missing. And so Brian and I have these sketchbooks full of notes from these early hosts. And uh, we come back that, after that weekend. 
we, we show Nate, he was back in San Francisco programming, and we say, Nate, look at this feedback we got. And Nate looks at it and goes, wait, guys, this stuff isn't that hard to do. So he actually starts to code some of the changes that night. And by the next day, we send an email to the host we met. Hey, it was so nice to meet you. Uh, the photos are live. Click here to see your new listing. And by the way, the idea that you have for the calendar, it's also live. Click here to check it out. And so the early hosts on Airbnb, they fell in love with us. Never before had a company cared so much to solve the problem of photos, to listen to their problems, and then fix their problems in almost real time. And so and a crazy thing happened. Revenue, which was all of, of all of $200 a week in fees, that's how much we were making, not a very successful business. <laughs> Revenue in one week, it had pre so $200, it had been that, like that for months, flatlined, $200 a week, $200 a week. Suddenly, it goes from 200 to 400. So we, we take the graph to Paul Graham. We're like, Paul, look what happened. <laughs> weird. We check, we make sure there's no bugs in the metrics. We're like, okay, yeah, okay, this is actually happening. There was extra $200 in our account at that week. And Paul looks at me and he goes, what are you still doing here? <laughs> Go back to New York City. <laughs> so it's kind of like, duh, okay. Brian and I, we book another flight, we go back to New York, we do the same thing, we take more photos, we get more feedback, we fix a product, and guess what happened? The next week, it went from $400 to $800. So at that point, Paul Graham didn't have to tell us what to do. <laughs> we repeated this going out into the world of becoming the patient, of talking to our customers for about five or six weekends in a row, flying out to, to Manhattan and Brooklyn. Um, I'll never forget the moment when I'm like, I'm lost in the middle of Brooklyn. It's late at night. It's snowing, because remember, this is February. It's absolutely free. It's like sub-freezing temperatures. I have like 30 pounds of camera gear on my back. I'm by myself. My iPhone is dead. And I'm standing at this intersection in Brooklyn being like, God, I never thought this was the life of an internet entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> All the places you'll go when yes. you found a company, right? And I kind of want to ask we're kind of running a little bit out of time, and I want to get some audience questions before we end. Sure. Um, but is, is, that, is that kind of where Brian gets that thing that he said in a, a magazine interview? Do, thing, do things that don't scale. We start with the perfect experience and work backwards. That's how you're going to continue to be successful. Is that kind of that Paul Graham moment kind of still uh, in your ears? What are you doing here? Go there. <laughs> <laughs> His message was go meet the people. Go meet the people. And was, in our case, it was the people who made up our service. And it was that formative moment of doing things that don't scale, having permission. So the minute that happened, our heads exploded. It was like, wow, what are all the possibilities of things we could be doing to grow the business if, in the early days, it doesn't matter if it scales or not, which is, in fact, the way that it should be. In the early days, it truly doesn't matter if you're coding something so it can accommodate 10x or 100x the user base. You'll never get there, I don't think, with, if you don't take care of the things that don't scale first. So... Um, it's, it's, a, it's a concept that lives and breathes every day inside the company today. Uh, everyone in the company has permission to do things that don't scale. Um, a great example of this, by the way. So this, these photos were a huge success. And we realized that, well, we, we can't actually scale and travel around the rest of the country taking photos. But what if we started to hire photographers who could? So we, over the last couple of years, have built out this photography program where we now have 3,000 photographers all over the world shooting pictures for hosts' apartments. And right today, it's a very scalable operation. It's managed by a couple people. We built a really uh, powerful tool to manage all these photographers and images coming in. 
And we now have hit over a million images photographed on the site. But it all started by, we never would have started there. We started with, by us going out and doing it ourselves. So started there, and then we have figured out over time how to scale it. Awesome. Very good. Well, thank you very much for answering my questions. I want to get a couple of audience questions here because uh, sure. we have a little uh, bit of time here, and we have to get you out. So I uh, can take a couple of questions. Uh, yes? Cool. Well, thanks for using the service. Um, how did we scale? Well, here's the funny thing. <clears throat> it turns out that New York is an incredibly international destination. And so while we were in New York, we're making the quality of listings better. Um, we're building up love with our customers who basically started, our early hosts started telling their neighbors, their coworkers, their family members, their friends. And we started to see inventory increase organically, purely through word of mouth, because there was no advertisers, no press at this time. And with more inventory that's a higher quality, it started to attract people from around the world. And suddenly, we'd start to see listings pop up in Berlin, and Rome, and Vietnam. And we're like, what on earth? How are people finding out about us in these far corners of the world? And we'd go into the account, we'd look in the admin, and we'd see, like, oh, look at that. Interesting. They stayed in New York two weeks ago. And so we saw the beginning of our network effect, where people travel as a guest, they experience the product, and when they come home, they start to have an epiphany. They're like, wait a second, I have some extra space too. Why don't I list that on that Airbnb site? And so we started to see the beginning of this really powerful network effect that still happens today. Um, because now we had listings in Berlin and Vietnam and Rome, and so people were going to stay in Berlin, and they go back to London, and they put up a listing in London. It started to, um, it all started in New York and worked its way out. Um, <clears throat> I think that there's a couple other things that are uh, a little more formulaic than that. Um, there's three things that make this all work. Payments, profiles, and reviews. These are the three core ingredients that make a social uh, sharing economy site like this work. Uh, payments. Knowing that your payment is safe and secure. So when you pay on Airbnb, you actually pay us. And we hold the money until 24 hours after you check in, which ensures to the host that they're going to get paid, and ensures to the guest that when they show up, it's going to be as described. Because if it's not, the host isn't going to get paid. Um, the other thing is that we make it really easy for people to pay in their own currency. So we just want to remove all possible friction for payments. So if you're traveling from, say, San Francisco to Paris, you could pay in dollars, and the host in Paris could get paid out in euros, and nobody knows the difference. Super frictionless. Second thing is profiles. So knowing who it is that you're corresponding with is incredibly important. And um, we're able to pull in a lot of Facebook data overlay it with our existing data and reveal what we call social connections so that we can show you how you're already connected to the people on Airbnb. Um, we can show you, you have a mutual friend in common with a host. We can show you if a friend of yours has already stayed with the host and left a public review. We can show you if you went to the same university, if you're in the same alumni network. And so there's now over, uh, we just crossed um, 500 million social connections on the site. So there's a very good chance that Every single person in this room, when you go to Airbnb, there's at least one connection in every major city on the planet. So it's actually like, it's kind of like this concept of, they're not strangers. It's someone that you trust, but you haven't met yet.
hmm, we had some competitors in the space. Um, we never really saw Couchsurfing as a competitor, mainly because they were a nonprofit for a while, um, and they there was no transaction involved. So um, I think that what was important to us was to create a service where people could simply list and simply book. And what happened is that you know we started with private rooms, and then it became entire apartments, and then somebody listed a bed and breakfast, and then somebody listed um, a treehouse, and somebody listed a castle, and then somebody listed a villa, and somebody listed a boat. And we actually had to have like, real conversations about, should we let people list boats on Airbnb? Like, <laughs> Because the, pl the platform, we, we created a platform, but the creativity of the community was really surprising to us in the early days. People were listing private islands. There's so many private islands, we had to create a category for them. <laughs> M mine is one of them, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think, you know, for us, it was just about creating a really open platform where the interpretation of space was really up to the community. We have teepees on the site. We have igloos, believe it or not. There's a whole category just for igloos. <laughs> That's crazy. not mine. <laughs> At one point, you could rent Conan O'Brien's couch on stage down in Burbank, California. <laughs> he rented out the couch that the celebrities sit on when he interviews them. It's a fold-out couch, and three lucky guests got to stay on it last, uh, last year for a dollar. Wow. <laughs> they actually slept on stage. Amazing. One more... Right. I think, by the way, I think when you start a company on credit cards, you're incredibly frugal and thoughtful about what you do with money, um, which is still in our blood today. Um, so the investments that we've, we've taken um, have been very strategic. Um, last year we realized, so last year something, something crazy happened. What happened is that the business tipped. Last year, more business, more transactions took place on Airbnb outside of the United States than domestically. 75% of our business happened outside of the US. And suddenly, we found ourselves an international company, whether we liked it or not. We suddenly had to service people in other countries with other currencies and other languages. And we had tried to do it from San Francisco as, as long as we could, and I think we hit a wall. And the, the lesson for us was that it's really hard to localize without a local. So we said, OK, we need to be closer to our community and closer to where our business is. So um, the last 12 months have been all about international. Um, earlier this year, we rolled out a series of offices in Europe um, in South America um, so that we could have coverage in our markets so that when you sign up as a host in any of these markets, say it's in Paris or Rome or Copenhagen, um, you actually get a call from us from somebody that speaks your language in the, perhaps the right dialect, calling from the country code so the caller ID says the, you know, a local number, and somebody who knows the local geography where you are. These are all these critical little touch points along the way as you build trust with a customer to use the service. And so the last 12 months has been basically building out this international operation. And one more question. I believe you had your hand up. Quick one. Do you still do stuff that doesn't scale? Do you still get things that you use that you use today, or do you uh, The question was, do we still do things that don't scale? Uh, absolutely. Every day there's teams in marketing, there's teams on product um, that will start things, and 
they'll start as experiments that don't scale at all. So it's like kind of almost like a little bit of hack nature. Kind of we'll just hack things together, um, <clears throat> and we'll figure out how to scale it afterwards. So, yeah, absolutely. Very good. We're just about out of time. I apologize for not getting to everyone's question, but please uh, give a warm round of applause for Joe and thank you once again, Joe, for uh, coming down and. I just want to say before we go that uh, if you guys are using foundation, we're going to have a little bit of something special this afternoon. So keep your eyes out on the blog. All right, thank you very much and have a good day.